Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as senior minister here at Knox, and what a morning. Thank you for your reading, Myrna. It's great to have Carmen on the organ, have a team up front, to have Christine leading our prayers for the first time at the 11 a.m. service. What a great morning to be together, to worship together. Before we begin to reflect on what we've heard read, why don't we pray? This is a prayer for illumination. Let's ask God to help us understand what we've heard read. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come among us now. We know that we need you to illuminate our understanding. There are things in what we've read that you intend for us. Each one of us in our circumstances, I pray that you would bring that into focus for us today. Give us um, the focus to pay attention to you. And we pray for anyone in the sanctuary within the sound of my voice or anyone who's left um, who is not at peace. We pray that you would be with them, Lord. As we sang earlier, though the wrong, the brokenness of the world seems oft so wrong, you are the ruler of the world yet. We praise you and ask you to be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we are starting a new sermon series called The Drama of Scripture. And I'm excited about this series because I think it's going to help us to better grasp the big picture of God's story. Sometimes we just get bits and pieces of the Bible and we don't necessarily see how they fit into the whole. But through this series, we are going to cover the whole of the Bible, omitting large stretches, let me add. We're going to cover the whole thing nonetheless, from the beginning to the end, both chronologically and we're going to sum it up in six acts of the drama of God's story told in Scripture. So you know the play sometimes is divided into different acts. So we are invited to find our place, to play our part in this drama. It's not just a concept, a story at a distance. We are called into the story to make it our own story. So first of all, we have creation. Then we have the fall. Then covenant. Jesus comes among us and makes all the difference. The Holy Spirit gives birth to the church. And finally, the consummation. So we're going to cover each of those parts, those acts, over the next six Sundays. And I get this structure from N.T. Wright, who is a New Testament scholar. Some of you may have heard his name before. Um, he only has five acts, but we've added a sixth because we needed it to fit in six Sundays up to Advent. Only partly for that reason. All of us have a story. All of us come from somewhere. And I love when I meet people or when I'm with a group of people, I love asking them to describe where have you come from. Sometimes people describe where they've come from that day. Sometimes they go back to the beginning of their family. We tell the story of where we've come from individually in different ways. Maybe we list off the places we've lived or the schools we've gone to or the jobs we've held or we describe who we are in terms of our family and our relationships. Behind all the diversity, all 
the many stories represented in our world. Christians believe that there is one true story, a story that holds every individual story together. And that is the story that God gives us as told in the Bible. And scripture tells it in these six different chapters. And to zoom in on that a little more, we begin with creation and we can see that as God establishing his kingdom in the world. Soon after that, and we'll cover this next Sunday, we learn of rebellion in the kingdom, that all was not well. And we call that the fall. And then God, God begins his redemption project as he covenants with Israel. He chooses a people for himself and he promises to be with them. And then the true king comes. Redemption is accomplished as Jesus is born, lives, dies, and is raised again. And the church and the power of the Holy Spirit responds to that new reality and the kingdom grows. But it's not until the final act, until redemption is consummated with the return of the king, that things are truly put right in the world. And at the very center of this story, the whole story told in scripture is Jesus Christ, in whom God has revealed his complete purpose and his meaning for the world. And the Bible teaches us that only in this grand narrative can we discover the meaning of human history. And can you discover the meaning of your own life, what God intends for you? So this morning we start at the beginning. Genesis 1 tells us the story of creation. And we learn a few things here. We learn first that God is creator but also that all of creation is distinct from him. Secondly, we learn, we learn that God ordered the world in creation. There was a harmony and an order to what he created. And then third, we read about how God created humanity in his image. It's only human nature to ask questions about origins. Maybe we're curious about where our parents, our grandparents, or going back even farther in history, where they came from, the stories of their travels, their lives. And the older you get, the more you seem to want to know these stories. But I think that's also a defining feature of any close friendship. You know where your friend comes from, right? You know about their family of origin. But where beyond those individual stories, where do we ultimately come from? Why is there something rather than nothing? Well, verse 1 tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in that sentence, God is the subject and the world is the object. They are separate. A lot of people have vague notions of God. Lately, I've been watching Obi-Wan Kenobi. The TV series came out a year ago, part of the Star Wars franchise. Stars Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan Kenobi. Ewan McGregor's excellent. In the original Star Wars movie, Jedi Master Obi-Wan Kenobi was played by Alec Guinness, who is also excellent. Maybe more excellent than Ewan McGregor. And that original Kenobi described a power in the universe called the Force. You may have heard of it. 
He says it's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds and penetrates us. It binds the whole galaxy together. And then, of course, he says, may the force be with you, repeatedly. In our culture, I think more or less, that describes how a lot of people understand God. A force behind the universe, binding all living things together. And another word for that view of God is pantheism. The idea that God is in everything and everyone. The Christian view of God is quite different from that. According to Genesis 1 and the whole Bible, God is distinct from his creation and from us. He is above and beyond us. He transcends everything. The universe could be destroyed, but God would continue, which is promising because it means the God of the Bible is in a position to help us like no one within our world ever could. I don't know how you're feeling these days, but I always find that September and October are crazy busy months of the year. In my experience, they're packed so full of new opportunities, new people, if you choose to meet new people. It's an exciting time of year, but it can be stressful too. It's all a little chaotic. New schedules to be figured out, new challenges to surmount. So what do we do? We make a list. And we see that here in Genesis 1 also. God is a God of order and harmony. It all takes seven days. He divides and limits things, light and darkness, land and sea. And I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter for yourself, maybe when you get home today. God speaks the world into existence. Let there be light, he says. Let there be. His word is creative and gives life. And each day he sees that it is good. That's the goal here, that it be good. He's putting his love and his care into creation. He wants it all to be good. God even builds rest into the plan. On the seventh day, he takes the first Sabbath rest in history. When people read Genesis 1 and 2, they sometimes seek particular answers to the question, how? How did God create these things? How long did it take? Did it happen through evolution or not? But these chapters do not answer those questions. Genesis 1 rather offers us insight into the why question. I remember years ago, we bought my parents a new coffee maker for Christmas. It was a French press or a bodum. They were not familiar with this concept, but they were intrigued. They, they'd never seen one before, and so I waited while they held it up, turned it this way and that way. They had questions, but I can tell you, they did not ask, how long did it take someone to make this? Or how did they do it? How did they do this? How did they get the metal foil thing inside this thing? No, what they wanted to know was, what is this for? They'd only ever known a drip coffee maker. 
Why did you give us this strange thing, is what they asked. And that's what we need to know about this world, too. Why did God make it? What is it for? How are we to live in it if we want to live well? Genesis 1 was not written to answer the question how, it was written to answer the question why. Because the Bible is not a scientific textbook. It's the story of God's plan to save the world. Scripture simply does not answer the questions that science asks. And besides, science itself is limited. It cannot offer what the Bible does. As one scientist put it, the scientific study of human origins seems to be a field in which each discovery raises the debate to a more sophisticated level of uncertainty. How then can we know? Well, the author of Hebrews says that it's only by faith that we understand the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. And let me say that I've known enough Christian scientists over the years, and there are a number of them here at Knox, to be assured that science and faith are not in conflict, but rather they work together. As one theologian described it, we do not have to choose between an anti-religious science and an anti-science religion. In the end, science is amazing and helps us to know some things, but the only way we ever really find out who we truly are is from God. A couple of years ago, when my daughter Lily was still in high school, she told us, her parents, that she had, a high, she had a science teacher who was greeting their class every morning by saying, good morning, cosmic accidents. It's kind of funny. He was certainly joking. But he was also making a point. He was saying, with a big smile on his face, he was saying, you, all of you kids, all of you teenagers in this class, you are the products of an accident of nature. You don't have a higher purpose. There is no greater horizon of meaning behind you. Essentially, if you unpack it, he was saying that you're alone in this universe and there is no deeper significance to any of this. This morning, I want to be clear that the Bible says something totally different from that. The Bible says that there is a loving, personal God who created the universe and who created you, and that changes everything. There is one view of human origins that we can rule out, and that is the idea that we came from a process that was random and accidental. In Genesis 1, we see that God is personally involved in creation to the point of creating human beings in his own image. And so we're designed to be in relationship with him. And he creates us distinctively as male and female. Gender here is presented not as a choice we make, but as a gift from God. And we are like God in that he sends us out. He commissions us to go and do more of what he himself started. Be fruitful and increase in number, it says. Sometimes you hear this called our creation mandate or our cultural mandate. 
God is sending us out to be creative in the world like he is, to care for the world, to be stewards of the world. We'll learn more about that in Genesis 2. And I'm going to read from the second chapter of Genesis now. Picking up where we ended. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of that, but one obvious question presents itself, I think. Why are there two different creation stories in the Bible? Because you can't understand God as creator or us as his creatures, the world as his creation, unless you have both. There are two different accounts because more was needed to be said than what we read in Genesis 1. They don't contradict each other. They complement each other. One is a list in the form of a story, in the form of a, a poem, rather. The other, in Genesis 2, is an account, a narrative, a story. Genesis 1 looks at humanity's position in the universe. Genesis 2 looks at man and woman and their relationship to one another and to God. It fills in the details of this cultural mandate. You can think of it this way. Genesis 1 is about creation. Genesis 2 is about cultivation. And of course, it's set in a garden. My English aunt tells a story about a beautiful garden somewhere in the UK. A visitor came to tour the garden one day and was amazed at how lovely it was. This visitor exclaimed, 
Isn't God's creation marvelous? Well, the garden, the gardener overheard that comment and replied, you should have seen this place when God had it to himself. The point there is that it takes work to produce a garden. And Genesis 2 is where God asks us to get involved in the work of cultivation. When we moved as a family from downtown Toronto to Guelph about 12 years ago, it was a big change for all of us. It was possible that up to that point, my kids more or less assumed that things like corn and apples came from the no frills at Dufferin Mall. But they soon found out how it really works because we had farmers in our church in Guelph. One thing I learned about kids who grow up on a farm after I moved to Guelph is that they have a highly developed work ethic. And I'm glad my kids became friends with some of those farm kids for lots of reasons, not least because seeing how hard their friends who lived on the farm worked meant that my kids were a lot less likely to complain about their chores. Whether it's a farm or a garden, you have to work it. That's what turns the chaos into harmony, into something beautiful. And so God provides a garden and he puts humanity to work there to take care of it. So work is not a curse, not yet anyway. God was the first gardener. He asks us as humans to cultivate all that we've been given in this world. And we do that in God's image. We're reflecting God's creativity, even to the point of speaking words that create reality. You see that in verse 19, when the man gives names to the animals. It's like God is ushering him in to this powerful, life-changing creativity. God sends us out not necessarily to be literal gardeners or farmers, but to be fishers of men, to imitate Jesus by bringing people together to care for them so that they can flourish and find their place in God's story. What are you cultivating right now in your life in that way? Because we see here that we are created for the sake of others. It is not good for us to be alone. We're created for relationship. God designed us to be together with him, first of all, but also with each other. And though he made men and women to be different, he also created the unity of marriage. Here they were naked and they felt no shame, open to each other and open to God. And it was very good. You know, there's a third creation account in the Bible. I'm going to read from it now in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, 
To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God again. And so John tells us that the word of God through whom everything was created, became flesh, became physical, and came to earth. And then, at his baptism, God said he was very good. Jesus brought together truth and grace perfectly. And he knew there could be no forgiveness without sacrifice. And so he chose what makes no sense to us. He went to the cross to die. God the Father, His Son, the Word of God, and God the Spirit had been in loving relationship for all eternity, speaking to each other, sharing everything, delighting in their communion as the Trinity. But at the cross, all of that changed. At the cross, that eternal conversation within God coming out to us ended. There was silence. And Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken means that the Spirit of God was not hovering over him any longer. There was silence, no good word, no answer, only a curse. And Jesus bore the consequences of our sin and our rebellion. As we'll see more next week, Jesus took on himself the curse of all the evil, all the brokenness, all the despair in the world. The life-giving speech that began in Genesis 1 was silenced at the cross. Do you see Jesus as the one who came into the world so that new life could be possible? So the brokenness of so many things, even this past week that we've witnessed, could be put right. Do you believe that he died for you? That he rose from the dead for you? If you believe that, then you know that God looks at you right now, this morning, and says, You are good. You are very good to me. In Christ... Thanks to his sacrifice, we are now declared good. We are clothed in his righteousness. He takes our brokenness and heals it. God the Father says, in my son, I find you delightful. I love you. I take pleasure in you. I love being with you. You are mine. I created you and you are now my recreation. And nothing can separate you from my love. That is God's good word to us this morning. And as we follow Jesus, we are still called to work the garden, to cultivate grace and truth. What does that look like for you this fall? Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in your studies. Maybe it's in your retirement. How can you creatively flourish in those places? I heard recently about 
a woman who's retired, a friend of mine in Guelph who started a book club for her friends because she found that often their conversations were so superficial. And this, the discussions at this book club opened new doors for her. I know an engineer who has been bringing his co-workers together at lunchtime to work on their skills of various kinds, public speaking, goal setting, how to be a leader. There was interest in his office among his colleagues in talking about those things, but it's also allowed him to build relationships and get to know his co-workers. I know a young woman, a student at the university, who has used the knowledge she's been acquiring in her courses not only to excel in her studies and get good grades, but also to tutor kids in literacy. And so, I leave you with two reflection questions. Have you accepted that in Christ, you are good, you are very good? That the same blessing we read about in Genesis 1 is for you personally today? And then secondly, how is the Spirit of God hovering over you in this season of your life? In what way right now is he calling you to cultivate his goodness creatively by bringing others together and caring for them so they can flourish and find their place in God's story?